You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. everybody. Thank you, but I will run into that. <laughs> All right. Ah, we are continuing in our journey through Genesis today. Uh, it's been quite a, quite a journey. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's opened my eyes to a lot of things I've never seen before. Uh, one of the great privileges of being in this position, I get to spend a lot of time each week digging into the Word and digging into the amazing resources that people have um, created before us. Uh, it's just such a remarkable thing to be at this point in history where there are people that have dedicated decades towards studying a particular area of scripture or going to the places that we talk about and doing archaeology and digging up truth and presenting it for us. And a lot of the things that I have access to come on the shoulders of these people. And it's just such an, a, an amazing privilege um, to be able to do that and to be able to dig in and find such clarity because people that have been working over the centuries to seek that clarity, people that have been seeking the truth of God's word and to be able to reveal it. And um, I just find it a great privilege to be able to take part in that. And so I'm not sure why I said that, but it's a wonderful thing. Um, yep. So we are, we are continuing in through Genesis, and last week we were talking about Jacob and Esau, and how Jacob is a big jerk, and he's a liar, and he's taken advantage of his family, and his mom's a schemer, and she's encouraging him to do all these things, and now they've gotten themselves into a spot where Esau wants to kill Jacob, and they need to get him out of town. And so our chapter comes in right at the end of this, is um, Rebecca's schemes to get Jacob away for a while, to let Esau's anger di- dim down. And the whole emphasis of that chapter was, do the ends justify the means? My desire for that, or my idea that this is somehow for the greater good, means it's okay for me to be wicked in this instance. And the answer to that is unequivocally, no. no. It's always No. There is never an excuse for wickedness. We are called as a people to be set apart, to be an example to the world, and that will mean difficulties in life. If you're going to be set apart, if you're going to be an example, you will have challenges. Peter writes to us and he says, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that beset you, as if it were some strange thing that's happening to you. It's just what we can expect in this life if we're going to be walking in the light that God has for us. And so today, we're actually going to be looking at a little bit of a turn in that same idea of does the ends justify the means, but it's more along the lines of does the sacrifice justify the reward? Or in another phrasing, is the reward worth your sacrifice? So everything in your life, you will have to give up something for it. If you want to work, you will have to give up time. If you want to spend time with this person, you will give up time with that person. No matter what we do, there's a choice that has to be made. There's something that will be sacrificed. And so a lot of times we look at sacrifice as a bad word. It's a, you know, a, almost like a negative sort of thing, but it's more of a reality of you will have to choose one thing over another. You have to be willing to give that up. Is the reward you're receiving for that choice worth the sacrifice you're making? Now, some things in this life, we just have to do this. We just have to, we have to eat. We need clothing. We need shelter. We got to pay the bills. So when we go to work, it's worth the sacrifice because we are able to continue on. 
But we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how much food do I need in the pantry? What quality food do I need in the pantry? How big a pantry should I have? How big a roof over that pantry? How big a car? How many cars? And we get to this point where we get to this mindset of, well, I really think I should have, I really think I should have, I really think I should have, I really think I should have. And all of that sacrifice that you're making in time and all the things you're sacrificing because you no longer can spend time on to achieve those things, is it really worth it at the end of the day? When at the beginning of the day, you needed food and shelter and clothing. Those are things worth spending time on. They are, it's honorable to go to work every day and to provide for your family. It's a good thing. It's a thing that God calls us to. But how much are we dedicating our lives to that in pursuit of things or bigger versions of those very same things that we may not actually need, but it's simply we're buying into this idea of the world and this want. And the world tells us that the wants are your needs, but we cannot mix those two words up. So, something of value is what God offers us in this life. But he offers us a perspective on this life, on things of eternal value, lasting value. Because most of the time, the things we're going to spend our lives on are fleeting. They're going to pass away. That job will not last forever. The kids will not be kids forever. Any monument we build will eventually fall down. None of these things will last forever. We have to decide with the time we have, were they worth the value of the sacrifice we made? Now, a lot of these things, God will want us to do in our life and he'll want to be a part of it, but our purposes within it need to be clear. Are we doing this under God's purposes or our own? For our own glory or for his? So Jacob is going to be presented with something of value today. And we're going to see how he responds and how he deals with this and how he wrestles with this. And we should reflect upon this within our own lives as we read through this account. So Genesis 28, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took a wife beside the wives he had. Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, it's a good stopping point for us. There's plenty to unpack here. First and foremost, there's a lot of repetition. Whenever there's a lot of repetition, it's pointing to something important. That's why they said it so many times. So many times it was said, Jacob was sent away. Then a natural comparison should be drawn. He was sent away to find a wife. What is the comparison that we are being led to when Isaac needed a wife? And what did his father do? Well, his father, Abraham, did not send Isaac away. So why on earth would Isaac be sending Jacob away? Because when Abraham sent for a wife, he sent his oldest, 
wisest, most capable servant in his household. The person who he had set over everything to take care of. He said, you and a company go and find a wife for my son and do not take him under any means to the land from where I'm from. He set the most capable person to make sure that he knew how to deal well with his wily relatives. Because they're wily, they're conniving, they're good at it. So he sent someone who was well-prepared and able to handle the task. And he goes and he accomplishes it, and God goes before him and he blesses it. And when he gets there, he's able to get back quickly. He sent the right man for the job. Jacob is none of these things. So why would he send him? Because he's actually sending him, when we look at the text, when we look for reason, because we serve a God of reason for what is done, it's because he's none of these things. It's because he's not a man of God. When his dealings with his father, just in the previous chapter, and he says, why, how, would, how did you accomplish this so quickly? He says, because the Lord, your God, blessed me. Jacob doesn't serve the Lord, but now he has the blessing of God. He's going to be God's man. He needs to serve the Lord. So he needs to have an experience in his life where he needs to depend on God to get through it. This is such an experience, and that's why he's going. Now, the other part of this that we should be seeing is Esau's response. Because Esau's, Esau's response, say that a lot of times fast, Esau's response in a lot of things is always a half measure. He hears, but he doesn't really hear. Because he's fine. oh, dad doesn't like the Canaanite women. But it's said over and over again. He sent him to Padan Aram. He sent him to Padan Aram. He sent him to Padan Aram. That's 400 miles away. It's a trek. It's a journey. It's inconvenience. Ishmael lives maybe 20 miles away. It's an easy solution to this problem. But he didn't hear the real issue is that those people are our people. Those people are of the blessed lineage. Those are the people that would have been following our God. And Ishmael is basically an Egyptian. We track so much that he's, look at that, (laughs) that he's Abraham's son. But Abraham's servant wife at that time was from Egypt. And when they're banished and cast out, she goes and finds Ishmael, an Egyptian wife. So him and his household and everything that's going on is mostly Egyptian. That's what they're going to be focused on. That's what they're going to be talking about. That's who they're going to be looking towards. That's the problem. What was the problem with the Canaanites? They serve other gods that they made up. That's the whole point of going this great distance to go to the right place for the right people at the right time. And a lot of times, the right thing to do, the necessary thing to do to make sure that you are equally yoked in what you're doing, to make sure you're on God's mission, what you're doing, is going to be out of the way and inconvenient. And to take a half measure is to become less effective or not effective at all. Because everything that he's trying to strive for and to search for and to gain, he misses out every single time because of the half measure he's taken in doing it. It brought to mind the church of Laodicea that is talked about in Revelation 3. So several letters were written to the churches of the time about the issues that were at hand. And it says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. A lot of other translations says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It says, for you say I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Esau just doesn't understand that his choices are not resulting, are not going to end up with the results he wants. He thinks he's doing really well, but at the end of the day, he ends up being poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually so, at least. He ends up in a real difficult spot, and we have to reflect upon our lives of that. There's going to be the solution which is hard, or something that's similar to it that's easy. But it's not going to have the results that you desire. There's always going to be problems with this. There's always going to be things that just don't measure up, that aren't going to fully accomplish what you're set out to do. God said, hey, I've called you to hard things. That's why I'm with you. That's my promise to you. I'm going to go with you because it's a hard thing, because it's a sacrifice. Don't choose the half measure. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. That's how our chapter ends. So some different things I want to look at through there. You have Jacob. This is his first real encounter with the Lord, how he responds to this, how he responds to this idea of how do we worship, where do we worship, and how do I in some way respond with what God has given me. He's going to be dealing and wrestling through these things. But as a quick aside before that, as a bit of a background what's going on here and some of their thinking that is actually prevalent of this time, I want to first focus in on Jacob's ladder and this kind of this idea that's been placed. It's not the children's toy, although that is a really neat device. Um, it's talking about a stairway to heaven. When I was working on this on Thursday, I had to resist listening to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven all day. It's not about this. <laughs> um, but it's this concept that somehow mankind can, well, like the song, buy a stairway to heaven. 
that I can attain this on my own. In some way, if I work hard enough, I can seize this for myself. So we're going to put up a picture here of what's known as a ziggurat. And this is man's version of a stairway to heaven. It would have had stairs on all sides of it. There might be uh, four to six giant stairways. These are made of bricks, so little bricks makes the entire structure. And at the top of it would have been a temple where they assumed that's where the gods would reside and they could meet them in that place and they could achieve this on their own if they could just build it in the right place or build it high enough. We can do this. It's the whole premise of the Tower of Babel incidents in the Bible, that we can be in the same place as God. We can set ourselves up in the heavens. We can do this on our own. I can seize this for myself. Ignoring the reality of the dream that this only is attributed through God allowing you to perceive it. God allowing you to be in this place. You cannot seize this. This is the work on the cross itself. You cannot seize it. There's nothing that you can do to accomplish this. You cannot be in the heavenly place without God bringing you there. That's what's missed. But this is a very common conception of the time. They thought they could do this, but you cannot. And then we have his response to what he calls the house of God. This little pillar is going to be the house of God. I'm going to call it Bethel. Bethel is Bethel, which is quite literally house of God. That's the literal translation of that word. It's our Anglicanized version of what's being said. And this, what originally began as a memorial to the place where he met the Lord, which is a good thing. He wanted to commemorate this moment, a pillar in his place of life to remind him of the great things God has done. Started off as a good thing. And people came and they worshiped the Lord there. It was a good thing. But too many things, when we try to set up these pillars and we make it about that place and about that thing, we begin to forget what it was all about in the first place. This is exactly what happens here with this exact place. Is that later on when Israel is going to split in half and then half of the nation no longer has access to Jerusalem, that, well, we got to have another place of worship. I tell you what we'll do. 1 Kings 12. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, because calves of gold always end up with good things. <laughs> and he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. It became no longer about the God that rescued them, but the place where they had met him. They'd lost touch with the purposes in the first place. So contextually what's going on. Now looking at Jacob's faith, he's in this moment, he has not served God before, he is not a man of faith. And he has just had an amazing, incredible encounter of God. He's being set on this harrowing journey and he's starting to reflect on what might actually matter at this point when he's got the God of the universe reaching out to him, saying, I'm going to be with you. And he reflects upon this. And he reflects on, it would be nice to live through this. I've got a 400-mile journey alone to people I don't know. It would be nice to just get back alive, Lord. If you could keep me fed, if you could keep me clothed, if you could bring me back safe, then I'll know you're with me. It's a very honest assessment of where he's at, and it really speaks to something that is intrinsic of all mankind when we really get to the most desperate spots in life. We just have the mentality, it would be great just to get through it. And Jesus speaks to this, that in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's an understandable thing to be concerned about these things. And God is imploring us to rise above that, as challenging as it may be, to first seek the Lord and he will take care of you. Put your faith in the Lord and you will be provided for. It's a difficult step to make. It's a big step of faith. And the desire is to ultimately get to a place in your life where you're content with just the things that the Lord provides. Paul writes to us out of 1 Timothy, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And so I want to actually give you an encouragement, because there's so many things that the world screams that you need, and you don't. If we can actually learn that lesson, to be content with coming home and opening the fridge and there's at least an egg in there saying, thank you, Lord, I'm eating tonight. And to realize you had a door to open to put that fridge into. You have a roof over your head. You got a warm bed to sleep in. The lights are on, the water is running. And there's good, loving people in your life. If we can be content with these most basic things, it will change your life. It will bring lasting joy in your life, peace in your life. But we have to learn to be content with that. We cannot look around at the world or look at anybody else that has anything more and compare because then it will rob you of that. So there's an interesting thing that God is promising these and Jacob is wrestling with this and there's something that we tend to naturally do to think there needs to be this give and take within this. I've got to do my part in this to make sure that I feel that I've earned it in some way. So Lord, whatever you give me, I'll pay you for my blessing. I'll give you back a tenth, whatever you've given me. And a lot of times we can have these inaccurate perceptions of why we tithe, the reason for doing it. We can get this idea in our mind, well, God needs my money. The church keeps telling me that God needs my money. Got to pay the preacher. God needs my money. I got to tithe for that. They need me. And I don't want to diminish the incredible giving body that we have in any way. But I want to speak to the reality that God will take care of the people that he's called to do his work. God himself needs nothing. When we read out of Psalm 50, it says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. This was a people that was giving, regularly giving before the Lord, but it was a routine. It was a habit. It was an obligation. The heart was not in the right spot. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to your God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? 
or take my covenant on your lips, for you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. It's a warning for people. Our hearts have to be in the right place. And the reasons for what we're doing, it cannot be rote. It cannot be obligation. It has to be because God has called you to this. God has put this upon you. The entirety of the law is referred to as our tutor. You are no longer under the law. You are not subject to it. You are now under the law of grace, meaning everything in the law is meant for a lesson to be learned. So we need to look at it and say, what lesson was I supposed to learn from this Lord? When we look at the tithe, when we look at money, which is talked about more than almost anything else in Scripture, it's over 3,000 verses on money. When we look at this, it's meant to teach us something. What is it meant to teach me, Lord? If you don't actually need my money, why do I have to give it to you? I kind of like it. It's helpful. Why would you want me to, what do you want me to learn? It's the deep realization of trust. It's the deep realization that God is our provider. It's the deep realization that all of that can fail. God does not. Regularly giving back to him out of a response of the increase he's given us is a reminder of that truth. Because that's one of the few things that we so quickly forget. When we start doing really well, we start to forget that God is the one that got us here in the first place. We start glorifying self and puffing up self. We start worshiping the created and not the creator. When something is so intrinsic to humanity, it's such a big deal, it's talked about so much, we need a regular reminder of it. The tithe is meant for you. It has a purpose. God has a plan for it. If you give money to the Lord or whatever to the Lord, he'll use it. But it's for your sake. And that's the truth that God wants us to learn. And this isn't out of obligation. This isn't out of guilt. It's an understanding of the lesson God desires each and every one of us to learn about money is that we cannot be attached to it. We cannot be ruled by it. We cannot serve it. And there's a very harsh, many very harsh warnings that Jesus gives to us when we start putting money before other things, when we start holding so tightly to the material wealth of this world. I'm going to read you one today that's probably the most snarky one that I've seen. (laughs) Read scripture, you will find God has a good sense of humor. It's a little dark sometimes. Luke 16, set up to this. It's a parable about a dishonest manager. He's about to get fired. The, ma- the master's saying, when I get back, you're done. So before he gets back from his journey, the dishonest manager meets with everybody that owes the master money. And he says, I'm going to cut your debt in half. 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 And he makes a bunch of friends by cheating the master of the things that he set him over, that he put him, put responsibilities on him, expectations on him, the gifts that he's been given to take care of that never belonged to him in the first place. And this is what happens when the master returns. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. I'm, I was always a little surprised by that. Like, this doesn't seem in line with everything else I've read, Jesus. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, 
they will be able to receive you into the eternal dwellings. Consider that there is more than one eternal dwelling place. Heaven is one, and there is another. These people aren't going to heaven. So make friends if you're going there. It should be a harsh admonition to us that if you're going to put your faith in that, when it fails, you better at least have some friends. You better at least have done that. Otherwise, it's going to be so, so awful. And he continues. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If that, if we're going to be irresponsible with the things that God has given us on this earth to take care of, to steward well, why on earth would God give us true riches? It's a warning. And so now as we deal with this, we deal with this idea, as Jacob deals with this idea, working through, I've just met the Lord. He's here. He's terrified. How do we do this? What did dad do? Maybe I should pour some oil on it. I mean, this is something. We got to figure this out. It was just, this must be the place to worship. This must be how we do this. And we get so caught up in doing and how and where. This must be the house of God. You can't swear in the house of God. Parking lot's fine. In here, no. <laughs> it's going to strike you down. You're going to catch on fire. As if there's something more holy about walking through those doors than outside of them. It's a natural human thing to get caught up in this, to get so tied to the place. David did this. He got all mixed up. He's like, I've got to build a house to God. I've got to give reverence to God. I've got to do something like this. And the Lord responds to David. In 1 Chronicles 17, he says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to twent, twent, tent, and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? No. Why are you worried about a house? I've never dwelled in a house. I moved you from place to place so you'd figure out it didn't matter the place. How did you not get that? I moved you into over around the desert for 40 years. You were never in the same spot. How did you not get that it didn't matter where you were? It mattered that I was with you. You were my people. In John 4, we see one of the most honest conversations between Jesus and another person. It's the woman at the well. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. 
we what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not about the place. It's not about the monument. It's not about a great, great cathedral to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And that's usually the original motivation. But over time, we start worshiping the edifice. We start worshiping the place. We start worshiping the great cathedrals of the land. Then we start worshiping the people that made them. We start worshiping the creator, created over the creator. And we forget that it wasn't about a place, it was about a God and his people, and the people that he's called by his name. In 1 Corinthians 6, it's written to us, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. There's a deep realization. If we have such awestruck reverence for a mighty cathedral where you walked in and you would, oh, you would talk quietly because this is holy. <laughs> such awestruck reverence for that temple to the Lord. Do we walk around with the same awestruck reverence to realize that you are the temple of the Lord? That the Holy Spirit that was sent to you from God dwells within you and said, I will be with you wherever you go? that you are a walking temple of God? Do you live your life with such reverence that you would that holy place on a hill? We go all the way back to Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You, not only are you the temple, you are the image you bear God's image on this world. You are his light to the rest of humanity, to the entirety of the planet. You are meant to not only be the temple, you're meant to represent God to everything and everyone. It's a calling for a reverent life, one with God. That is always what he's desired. That is always what he's promised, and it's always what he's offered. It is the thing of value. God said, I will be with you wherever you will go. Even if you don't want me there. Even if you're done growing for now. Lord, I've had enough. I want a break. God goes, no can do, sir. <laughs> Something of value that he has for us is his very presence in our lives, his partnership in our lives. John 15, 4 through 5 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And there's so many things the people of this world have believed. We've done amazing things without God. Look at all the things that we've done, the incredible things we've achieved, the incredible things we've discovered. I just want to remind them, those things were already there. You discovered them. You've discovered what God has already put in place. It's like a kid coming up and telling you, you know what five plus five is? It's ten. That's a good job, son. Well done. <laughs> and even all the mighty things we've built, put in place, the amazing engineering feats of humanity, 
it all falls down with one good earthquake. One good fire. It's gone. The pride, the achievement, the effort, the sense of self we tied to those things, they perish. They're not forever. God offers you things that are eternal. He wants to partner with you to do amazing, great things, incredible things in this world. But the whole point is the partnership, the glorification of the creator, not the created. 1 Peter 1 tells us, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like the grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and the word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen.